hello, hello, hello. This is Toothy Toad. This is Dr. Walter Aka. So t- this episode is more of like a bonus episode. Um, with everything that's going on with the coronavirus and everything that's happening in the world and the spikes in coronavirus and everything that we don't know and know about the coronavirus, I decided to bring on two ER doctors, uh, Dr. Jacqueline Wood and Dr. Erica Choa. They're both, uh, one is in Atlanta and the other one is in Virginia. Uh, they deal with, I mean, literally everybody that's coming in that's sick, you know, so I figured as dentists, we don't know much about coronavirus. We try to avoid the coronavirus. We just know to avoid it and wear N95s. But I figured with the world being so separate uh, when it comes to is the coronavirus fake? Is this really happening? What the numbers look like? I figure why, why not bring two people on that deal with patients on a daily basis, put their lives in, in, in jeopardy to try to help people, you know, uh, with the coronavirus. So, again, uh, let me start off by introducing Jack, Dr. Jacqueline Wood. Dr. Wood, what's going on? Hi there. So, on quick correction, although oh. I did train in Virginia. Okay. I um, currently live in Annapolis. Oh, okay. Um, close enough. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I do. I do work in the ER. Uh, we see this day in and day out, so I can attest to the fact that it is definitely not fake. <laughs> right, right. And then again, I mean, it, I, I still to this day don't understand how people can say it's fake, but that's another story for another day. <laughs> uh, and Dr. Cho, what's going on? You've been on the podcast hey. previous. <laughs> to uh, educate us on the coronavirus, but I want to bring you on again to kind of talk more about it. Yeah, so um, I'm Dr. Cho. I'm actually an uh, emergency medicine room physician out of Atlanta, Georgia. Um, And so as you guys know, you're probably watching CNN, we are currently in the middle of a surge. Um, So things are getting pretty crazy um, in our hospital emergency department. So it is not fake. It is real. It is happening. I'm in the thick of it. And so happy to answer all your questions and, and talk about my experience. Uh, my first question um, would be people that are coming in and are being diagnosed with COVID. How many of them percentage wise, uh, roughly, would you estimate are able to recover from the disease versus, uh, you know, succumb to, you know, the disease and don't make it out of the hospital. So I, it's hard to say um, from my perspective, numbers wise, how many can actually recover. Um, I would say certainly the majority of the patients that we see who we diagnose with coronavirus, um, I would say including the ones that are admitted because we have a pretty low threshold to admit um, do, do okay there is just a huge dichotomy between walking out the front door again and never making out of the hospital. Um, so although I can't give a, a quote as far as, as, you know, how many do well, um, it's certainly not a death sentence. The, the question becomes who is going to do well and who is not. And that's, that's always the challenge. What about you, so, Dr. Shaw? Yeah. So I think we actually um, calculate these numbers on a daily basis. Um, or a weekly basis, our hospital sort of gives that uh, those numbers. And 
I'm um, not sure if I'm really supposed to share, but I think it's it's a pretty good number. Um, I would say it's you know, greater than 75% of people survive coronavirus who are discharged from the hospital. Um, probably, you know, on the upper end of things, maybe 80, 90% of people do exceptionally well. The problem is when you, when you talk about survival, you're not exactly talking about, you know, the morbidity associated with it. So how are they actually doing once they're discharged? Do they have any symptoms, lingering symptoms? Are they short of breath for a what is their quality of life? How are they doing? And so we can talk about, yes, the majority of people are going to survive coronavirus, but how are they going to do? How are they going to fare? There's so much we don't know about this virus. And so I think survival is a great thing. It's good that most people survive, but unfortunately, some people are going to have, you know, side effects are going to have long-term effects, um, you know, whether physical, even mental, there's a lot of things um, that people are going to have to recover from when we uh, break out of this pandemic. So survival rate is a great number to look at, but I think ultimately, you know, what's the quality of life? What's the morbidity associated with those patients who are discharged? We don't know that right now. Okay. Uh, I noticed that you guys have changed your protocols, uh, Dr. Wood, uh, for intubation. Can you break it down for why, like, the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of people were just getting intubated? Like, I felt like a lot of people were going straight to intubation yep. uh, versus sure. now where they're, it seems like they're kind of hesitant to put people and intubate people. Mm -hmm. And can we talk about why they also... Uh, at the beginning, we were just going straight to um, more invasive intubation versus maybe the high pressure uh, uh, air. Yeah, the fact is, in the beginning, we just didn't know. We would see these people come in whose numbers just looked bad. Um, and I mean, normally in our setting, you your numbers look bad. We, we try to do things proactively. Um, we started to realize there's sort of a, it seemed like there was sort of a permissive hypoxia where a patient might actually look a whole lot better than their numbers do. Um, and maybe it would be in their best interest. We, we didn't feel like everyone who went on a vent and maybe even not the majority of people who went on an event were actually surviving, like um, Dr. Cho has said, with meaningful outcome. So if we could support your, your lungs and your airway, without all this invasive, uh, you know, ventilation, that might have been the better strategy. So we kind of slowly, I say slowly, but everything moves so quickly, probably in a couple weeks time, really shifted our, our focus from intubating everybody early on to really kind of giving you a chance and seeing how you as a patient were doing. Dr. Chua? Um, well, I think in, in terms of when you talk about protocols, obviously every hospital is different. Um, I think one of the protocols that we have adjusted is really the use of um, uh, non-invasive ventilation on our patients and you know high flow. We're doing a definitely more high flow oxygenation on these patients and you know letting them um, hang out here with their numbers because I just remember when we, this pandemic started, you know you get patients who are literally you know so hypoxic but they look great. You know, they're not, you know, an extremist. They're not struggling to breathe. Their numbers are like, okay, how in the world, you know, 80%, 70%. And, you know, that that's pretty scary. You know, when you put, uh, when you see somebody with those low numbers, your initial thought is, okay, oh my goodness, this person needs, you know, a breathing tube. But ultimately we have learned that, you know, if, if high flow, uh, if we can give these patients high flow and just, you know, avoid um, uh, intubation, really we're doing uh, them a service and we're helping their lungs recover from this a lot 
factor. I think the jury's still out. We still are learning about this virus. Um, and it's, it's really hard to compare to, uh, uh, different, you know, let's talk about ARDS and there's, there's a lot of controversy surrounding it. There's a lot of, um, uh, management differences, but I think ultimately we are doing better in treating it. We are learning every single day, and um, I think the hospital is the hospitals are adjusting. So it's we're just learning. <laughs> we are just <laughs> learning. So that's all I can say. <laughs> Have you noticed any differences in symptoms severity uh, between really the the first outbreak that happened and this little bit of a resurgence that has happened since everything is opened back up so yeah i'm in atlanta so i would say it's a big resurgence so it is it is um so you know when it first when it first happened i feel like it was sort of a slow um slow climb and we were you know trying to waiting for this huge surge of patients and you know we got there but it wasn't that that um unmanageable and i feel like now we're seeing this huge i don't know if you guys ever look at the numbers the state numbers if you ever have a chance just go look at georgia i mean the 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 curve it's literally it's climbing so fast that you know i'm afraid where we're going to be in the next two weeks and so i think right now we're seeing patients presenting in all sorts of ways. I mean, this virus is literally, it's a gangster. It literally, I, I mean, you have patients who are coming in with uh, platelets that are so low. You're coming in with patients who have low white blood cell counts. You're coming in with, you're getting patients who are having strokes, blood clots. So it's literally doing racking havoc, havoc on the body. And you're seeing young patients coming in with this. So, you know, a lot of my patients were, um, have been young that I've, in, that I've um, admitted to the hospital recently, which is different from what I had before. Before I had a lot of elderly patients, a lot of immunosuppressed patients, but I think those patients are to stay indoors. So right now we're having a lot of, you know, younger patients who are admitting to the hospital, which is different. So I don't know what is going to happen um, in the next few weeks, but it's definitely scary to look at the, is that, you know, you sense that podcast that was talking about, you know, COVID, um, you know, mutating and adjusting itself and changing and, you know, that we're just going to continue to learn about this virus because it's not going to present in the the same way as it did in the past. And I feel like in a, in, in a way we're seeing that, um, I talked about, I don't know if you got that earlier, but, you know, people are presenting with you know, low, low platelets, low white cell counts, you know, blood clots, strokes, you know, so it's really scary the things that we're seeing, especially in some of our young patients, which is different from what we were seeing in the past before with the elderly and immunocompromised. Uh, so we are going to continue to learn and and see how this virus is going to play out, but we're going to be learning a lot of new things in the next couple of weeks, especially in Georgia. We're going to find out. And I can say in, in Maryland, at least, well, I should say in our county, at least, um, we're having the opposite trend, which is, is good. Awesome. Um, we, we are seeing a lot less cases than we did in the initial sort of uh, nationwide surge, obviously nowhere near New York and some of the other states. Um, but I, I won't pretend to know why we're seeing less cases, but they do present in just like the wildest array, like Dr. Chua said, strokes. Um, we talked about COVID toes and COVID fingers and just things you would never expect a respiratory, primarily respiratory illness to, to look like. And like I said, you just never know. All you can tell those people at discharge is if you feel worse, you need to come back. That's all you can say. 
Okay. Uh, you said COVID toes and fingers. What does that mean? <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's it's microvascular um, just insult, I guess you could say. Uh, I think I've, I really think I was seeing cases of this before we really knew COVID was here mm-hmm. because somebody would come in and I, I swore it had to be some sort of an arterial embolus or something I needed to get you know, vascular involved with or something and no one could quite figure it out. And later on, we started seeing it with, with COVID patients. And it's kind of one of those things we've learned along the way. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so they talked about uh, the virus has mutated, at least in Texas, right? They said that the virus has mutated. And uh, so then I, what I did was I went online. Um, of course, uh, I'm a online doctor when it needs to what i need to be and i looked up like what that meant right and they were saying that it doesn't kill you any like it's not more uh um, virulent lethal lethal, yes sorry Mm -hmm. uh but it actually is more contagious so can you talk to us about like how viruses work when it comes to that kind of level like basically you the virus can mutate and from what someone described it to me this is viruses smart viruses will actually mutate so that the, they keep the host alive. Right. Unlike, unlike, for example, like Ebola, right? You got it, you pretty much, there was a high uh, mortality rate, okay? Mm-hmm. But a smart vi- virus will actually find a way to keep the host alive and be able to transmit it to other uh, hosts. So can you guys go over that a little bit and kind of sh- let us know what this whole mutation thing looks like and why it's important for us to know that? You know, I'm not even gonna, you know, I'll stay in my EM lane, but what I can, <laughs> but what I can, you know, extrapolate or kind of guess is mm-hmm. that, you know, if, if the virus sticks a, around a lot longer, it's going to cause, you know, a, a crazy array of symptoms. If right. it's not going to, you know, kill the person right away, it's just going to manifest itself in strange ways. So fatigue, um, you know, weakness, and like she said, microvascular insults, COVID thing. Right fingers, COVID toes, um, it's just going to linger um, for some time so that it can have just an opportunity to go to somebody else and, and spread like wildfire. So it's it's just different. So I can't tell you the, the specific right. virology, the specific science behind it, mm-hmm. um, but I can just, based on the, the podcast that you sent me, it just makes it makes sense that um, we're just getting more people who are uh, getting this virus because it's not killing people um, all of a sudden, you know. And let's be honest, it's... It, it was already a smart virus. You're the most yeah. contagious. You're shedding your virus right. before you have symptoms. So, yeah. I mean, how much smarter can you get than that? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So how, have, how has your life changed uh, personally outside of the emergency room? What have you been doing differently to keep yourself and your family safe? Mm-hmm. This is a great question, actually, because as you know, there have released a lot of uh, you know, literature out there talking about healthcare workers have less uh, rates of infection. And I think that we have been so vigilant in uh, PPE and uh, depending on which hospital you are, um, you work at, but we've been so vigilant in, in how we protect ourselves at work. And then also knowing what we know about the virus and the patients that we take care of when we come home, we have protocols. I know personally, when I leave my job, um, you know, I wear a mask up to my car in the hospital. When I get to my car, I park in the garage. I in, I get undressed in the garage um, and then put on a separate 
that pair of clothes in the garage. Then I go upstairs, take off those pair of clothes, jump in the shower, and then take those pair of clothes, put them in the washing machine. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of what I do. And I don't have any contact with anybody when I come home. And that's how I protect my family. Um, I think for me, because I work in the ER and I see patients who constantly have this, I'm very much more vigilant. Even if I go grocery shopping, I'm ducking people. (laughs) You know, I'm wearing my mask. So when I'm when I'm going grocery shopping, I'm going at early times in the morning when there's nobody there. So definitely taking those precautions. And I think it's it's unfortunate because because you know what is happening in the hospital. It's like you can't feel free to really live your life like you did before. So you know, when people, hey guys, let's get together and hang out, you know, that's no, I'm I'm not I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm the family who's, I was laughing the other day, I took my child to the park and I went with a, um, a bleach spray. I went with a cleaning spray. Cause I was like, I'm, t- I'm done. My child needs to play in the, in the swings and she needs to climb things, but I just don't want to have to deal with her getting sick. So me and my friend, we packed up our bags and we took our bleach, we sprayed down the swing. <laughs> I'm sure people me like I am a psycho but that gave me comfort because I'm like then my daughter can play freely on the swings so it's it's stressful but I I do I really take the time to figure out how I can protect myself and my family so my my coming home from work protocol is almost the same with I think maybe one or two less clothing changes but it's essentially (laughs) essentially the same thing I think we're all probably on the same wavelength as far as that goes at this point um I think we're all affected by just having to wear a mask everywhere you go. And that tends to be a sticking point for a lot of people. And I Mm -hmm. think, you know, we look at these patients and know there's not really a treatment. There's Mm -hmm. no vaccine. Mm -hmm. Our only barrier in, in the community really is the mask. I mean, at work, yes, we can wear our gowns, we can wear our gloves, we can wear two masks if we want to. Um, But the only thing we can do in the community is, keep our respiratory circulations to ourselves and they can do the same thing. It's, right. When, so it, have. when it comes to people coming into the ER, like when should you actually say, you know what, this is bad enough that I should go to the ER? When should you not go to the ER? I, I know that's an open-ended question. <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's it's really tough. hard to say. Yeah. I, I just, I hate the idea that somebody felt like they were turned away from the ER or we didn't take them seriously. Um, you know, because like I said, you might come in for nausea and we happen to, you know, I don't know how get around to the that fact that you have COVID or we think you have COVID. Um, and now you feel, you know, stupid. You were there for nausea. But I, so I tell my patients, certainly if you're more short of breath, certainly if you have fevers that are uncontrolled, um, but basically, if you're feeling worse and you're scared or you're concerned, we're here. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think it's really tough to tell people to have a clear cut answer. Oh, you should go to the hospital when, because for everybody, the symptoms are different. You know, like we already said, some people may not necessarily experience that, you know, shortness of breath. You know, they just may feel really ill and tired. You know, I had one guy who just literally his only symptom was fever. He had a fever and he says he just felt weak. And this is a young 27-year-old guy. And he came in and, you know, his heart rate's in the 150s. He has a fever. Um, his oxygen levels are low. He didn't complain of any shortness of breath. His x-ray looks terrible. His blood counts look terrible. And his symptoms were fever and weakness. 
And, you know, if somebody called you with that and you, you know, it's like, I just don't feel good. I have a fever. And, you know, you can't tell them just stay at home. You don't know how they're feeling, what they're experiencing. And so ultimately, I don't have that clear cut answer to say, keep at home. I can only tell you if something doesn't feel right with your body, feel that you need to be evaluated in the hospital, then you go to the hospital Mm -hmm. because we don't know much about this. And when you get to the hospital and we'll try to make you feel better and we'll have a joint, you know, decision making if everything looks great. And I think that you need to be discharged. You know, I always tell my patients that if you... Something doesn't feel right. You need to advocate. Let me know because I'm looking at objective data, but I can't say how you feel. So if you don't feel right, you don't feel safe going home, you got to tell me, you know, so I could figure out what else to do. But I just don't have a clear cut answer to stay, stay at home if, you know, until when. There's no answer for that. So we're five to eight months into this, depending on when the actual start date was. Um, and more and more people are getting infected every day. Have you seen any uh, any patients that have been infected twice? Mm. Uh, so a lot of people are, are banking on, if I get this thing, I survive it, I have the antibodies, then I should be good. And then there's, uh, I've seen stuff coming out saying that we don't know how long that immunity might last. It might last a couple of months. Uh, we just don't know. So have you seen any actual patients that have been infected a couple of months ago and now have been reinfected and showing the same symptoms again? I don't have an objective um, yes, no for you. I have a girl I tested today. I know she was positive a couple of months ago. I kind of feel like she was going to be positive today and she had felt better in between. So that could be my end of one. Um, I do know that there have, I think um, on the, the aircraft carrier that was highly affected with coronavirus, there um, were a couple, maybe only three, but there were a couple people who were, I believe, symptomatic and positive, tested negative, and then tested positive again. Um, and again, was that a false negative test? We don't, we don't really know. Um, right. Um, so yeah, that's probably the best most objective answer I can give you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, I think we just, we have, yeah. Um, I know there's that study that just came out talking about that. Um, some people had antibodies and then after so many months, they didn't have any antibodies, but we don't even know what that means. We don't know if that means so they can get it again or get less, you know, um, virulent strain. We have no idea. So it's, yeah, we're just in an unknown field. So. I guess my question is, there are so many different tests out there, right? There are the fast test where you can just turn around and get it, like, I guess, in a few hours. There's saliva tests now where you can just spit into a a dish and and get your results. And then there's other antibody tests that you have. Which one's the best one that gives you the highest um, chance of actually getting the positive, negative correct? Like, I know some of them have a a high um, false negative rate. Can you guys go over like which ones do you recommend people getting? I think testing is limited. I mean, we don't have a lot of places where people can get tested. Right. And so I, I think it's it's tough because if you come to the hospital, I'm not gonna test you if you don't have symptoms for the most part. Um so and I'm sure most of the hospital tests are pretty ac- you know, pretty accurate, um, specific. Um, you know, they they definitely have that false 
negative rate, um, which can be up to you know twenty percent. But I can't speak for the the tests that they have at the CVS or the saliva tests. But I say that if you have symptoms and you want to get tested, um, ultimately you got to go where you can find a test because it's it's just hard. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's not really as far as. <laughs> As far as the emergency department goes, it's not really up to me which how people are tested. We kind yeah. of are given the tests that we <laughs> that we're what given. You have. Um, yeah, I do yeah. think that the the RNA test that obviously tests specifically for um, that portion of the virus is um, the most reliable that that we have access to. We're not doing any saliva tests that I'm that I'm aware of. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know that I would trust that as much because it's not so much that the virus lives in the saliva; it's really yeah. more in the respiratory tract. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. um, you really got to get that. Um, the we were all in Pittsburgh, so we're all familiar with UPMC. I believe they came out with uh, protocol for anybody going into surgery at their hospitals that they're doing antibody testing on pretty much every patient in the hospital just to see, I guess, if they've had it or not. Uh, are either of your hospitals doing anything like that? We're not really doing, I mean, we do antibody tests on a few people, but almost, so because of the shortage of testing, we, all their surgeries are being treated um, with full PPE. So I think because business needs to run as usual, um, the, the hospital needs to save money and, you know, we just don't have enough tests. We have to treat everybody like they're positive. And so a lot of the surgeons now are, you know, doing full PPE and some people are being taken to surgery without the rapid tests. So they're going to surgery, not knowing if somebody has COVID. So they're wearing the N95, they're wearing the full guard because um, business needs to happen as usual. So I think ultimately that that's the solution our hospital has made is really just everybody just needs to uh, gown up. Um, and we're full people, and I think that's what we're doing. So I can't speak. We're not doing antibody yeah. tests in the emergency department. Um, I think some of the medical services are doing antibody testing, but um, it's not something we're doing in the ER. I don't, I don't believe our we, – we do have a um, a quicker test available for, you know, imminent surgeries, but um, I don't think it's an antibody test. And I, I think that even in the sense of a, of a negative – if it was me as the surgeon, I'd certainly continue to gown up because you do have that false negative rate and the the risk um, would be so great if you found out later. So I don't know that it necessarily, maybe it's their mind to use a bit, but I'm not sure how much the protocols change, maybe for anesthesia. With, for all the people listening that are trying to get back to lives as normal or the new normal, yeah. uh, people that haven't been working for you know a couple of months and uh what advice would you have for people who are trying to keep themselves protected but they also uh they need to go back to work they need to you know economics plays a a big role in this whole thing uh what, what advice do you have for people moving forward to try and keep this disease under control but also you know survive financially when you say people do you mean you know dentists medical staff or the general public general general public i, I think ultimately you as a 
person need to find ways to protect yourself because you have people out there who may not necessarily care about the people around them. I'm sorry to be so blunt, but there are people people out there who could care less about your health or you or your kids. And so they don't want to wear masks. And, you know, I think the, like, as we're talking about earlier, masks have been proven to slow down um, uh, the, the droplets. And so that is our best defense that we have that the general public has is a mask and really to social distance keep their distance from people so i would say try to manage your life accordingly you know if try to go to places that are not crowded when you go grocery shopping go at certain times if you have to go back to the workplace and actually work try your best to keep your mask on to sanitize wash your hands and social distance if you can while at work and if you can social distance and work you know then again it's hand high hygiene, it's keeping the mask on. And then if you're immunocompromised, really try to talk with your your um, employer and try to find out ways to adjust your living. Because at this point, it doesn't seem that we in leadership is making, taking the steps to um, protect us. They're very much about economics. And so there's going to be, ca- there are going to be casualties to, to this virus. And unfortunately, you just have to protect your family and yourself. That's all you can do. That's, that's basically what we do as doctors. When we walk into work, we mm-hmm. wipe down the keyboard, we wipe down the counter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've got our masks on all day. We don't have our gowns and our gloves on in between patients. So those simple steps you certainly can do in in your workplace as well. Mm -hmm. And and as she said, you know, if you can distance, if you can eat your lunch in your car instead of in your little dining area, Mm -hmm. um, anything you can do to just remain that six feet away um, at least, which I guess is probably a a bit questionable if it is aerosolized, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. anything you can do to stay away um, is helpful. So does that mean that no one's coming to my party? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Is it a Zoom party? <laughs> no, no. I mean, you have to you have to do what works for you. It's a party with you and your kids. That's it. <laughs> I was gonna invite the whole neighborhood. Uh, oh <laughs> no, but honestly, thank you guys. I really appreciate. Uh, we really appreciate you guys coming in and just giving us the insight as to what you guys were seeing. You know, uh, you guys are literally the experts when it comes to this and you're on the front line when it comes to helping triage patients in the right direction so we definitely appreciate you guys coming on and taking the time out of your busy night to uh educate our listeners and letting us know exactly what's what's going on what you guys are seeing so thank you so much for this thank you for sure thank, thank you for you guys. having I hope us you're protecting yourself in your office yeah <laughs> <laughs> we have no choice we have no choice so. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Tooth Be Told. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at realdentist with an S at gmail.com. That's realdentist, R-E-A-L, dentist with an S at gmail.com. Remember, the opinions on this podcast are just that, our professional opinions. The final decision about your health should be made by you and a trusted dental professional.